The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of learning in my own life that um, it's best when things just don't work out the way I plan them to. It's best when things don't happen in the, in the order that, that I would prefer um, they be. Because sometimes the temperature probe on the coffee maker at Westway Christian Church goes out, and we have to order a new one. Um, sometimes, like, because I've, I've been in the sound booth before, and no matter what button I push or how quickly I restart the computer, like, sometimes just happen, things happen on a computer, right? If you have a computer, like, you know that reality. Um, and then there are other times, like, where I have, I have in my mind what I feel like uh, God, God wants me to talk about on a, on a certain topic. And then I sit down and, and I start working on the message and I get like uh, 10% into it and it looks nothing like what I had in my own mind and what, in what God was going to do. Um, and I, I'm learning to like that. Because, because it just re- continues to reveal the reality that, that I'm not in charge. And I think in, in 2019, we need to be continually reminded of the reality that, that we're not in charge. That however much we think, like we can orchestrate and we can fix and we can organize and force things to happen in, in a way that that brings us up, that lifts us up, that gives us power and gives us authority. Um, it's just not reality. So I'm learning to embrace moments where, where I feel like I'm out of control. And I hope that as, as we learn and grow in our, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, like that we can embrace that more as individuals and as a body, that he is running the show in our lives and in our life as a body, and it's not us. If you have your Bible with you today, I would encourage you to open it to, um, to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be there in a little bit. If you have a question about today's message, I would encourage you to text it to the number um, that's on the screen, 307-316-2023. And then on Tuesdays, myself and one of our uh, pastors sit down on Facebook Live and, and respond um, to those. I've heard some interesting conversations that people have had with that, people listening to that at work um, and spawning conversations with, with the people they work with, um, if you're able to do that. And I think that's, I think that's pretty awesome. Um, this season for, for January and February, our, our series is called Focus, and we are we are learning what God has for us for the year 2019. And again, I say that. This is what God has um, for us. If, if, I were, if it were just me writing the message today, um, I can promise you this is not what I would have said, especially as it relates to finances. I had in my mind what, what I wanted to say, and it's just, it's just not that. So, um, so bear, I guess bear with God on this. Sarah Howe was born in 1826 in Providence, Rhode Island. 
1852, she married Florimund Howe, and following the Civil War, they moved to Boston, Massachusetts. Professionally, Sarah was a fortune teller. In April of 1879, Sarah opened the Ladies' Deposit Company as a savings bank that only accepted money from unmarried women. She promised a return on their investment of 8% monthly. She was able to attract $500,000 in deposits from more than 1,200 women as far away as Chicago and Washington. In September of 1880, the the Boston Daily Advisor began investigating her, and this led to a run on the bank by her investors. She had been paying the dividends with the cash provided from new deposits. She was arrested, convicted, and spent three years in prison. At the end of her prison term, she got out and she set up another bank, the Women's Bank. This time, she promised a 7% monthly return, and she took in about $50,000 before being discovered. She fled town and was arrested in 1888, but her investors didn't want to press charges, so they refused to cooperate. She returned to fortune-telling, and she died in 1892. About 30 years later, a guy by the name of Charles Ponzi took this to a whole different level. He began selling things called international reply coupons. These are similar to stamps. You should, this is fa- you should just read about this. It's fascinating. He began selling these reply coupons at a cost higher than what he had paid for them. And, and there is nothing illegal about that. But the problem was he needed cash to buy the initial coupons. So he told his investors that they would get a 50% return in the first 45 days and a 100% return in the first 90 days. In January of 1920, he started a company called the Securities Exchange Company, and by May, he had made more than $420,000. This is about $5 million in 2017 money. By the end of July, this is the same year, and, and, and I had heard of Charles Ponzi before. I had heard of this scheme before, but I had no idea how fast all of this went. By the end of July, he was bringing in more than a million dollars a day. He was also buying so many of these coupons, there was no way that he could sell them fast enough. In order to pay his, um, his investors back legally, so legally, he would have had to sell like 53,000 coupons a day in order to be able to legally pay his investigators back. There were some investigations and some mild runs on his banks, but he was able to pay them. And over a period of time, more and more of his investors were coming to him and wanting money from him. And, and there was one day, over a three-day period, he handed out more than $2 million to a crowd outside of his office, telling them, you have nothing to worry about. Here's your money. Here's your money. Here's your money. That calmed down his investors, but that obviously uh, got the attention of the state's attorney office. And in August of that year, so this is just eight months later, it all ended. And by the time he was done, he brought down five banks, and his investors made less than 30 cents on the dollar. The total loss was $22 million, which is more than $225 million in today's money. 
And before Charles Ponzi died, he was interviewed. And this is what he said. Even if they got nothing for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice aforethought, I had given them the best show ever staged in their territory since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. More recently, there was a guy by the name of Bernie Madoff. Maybe you've heard of him. His Ponzi scheme collapsed in 2008. He cost his investors $18 billion. Why do people fall for these things? Why do people get an email from a Nigerian prince who has sought you out and you are the long-lost relative of someone who died 10 years ago? Why do people give in to those things? I think the reality of it is is people, people are looking to invest in a sure thing. People are looking to invest in something that is going to pay them back in their life, where they can make a quick buck without actually having to work for it, without having to do anything. And each one of us are the same. We're all looking for things to invest in. We invest in our, in our time, in our treasure, in our talent. And we ought to be extremely cautious in the way that we invest our time, our treasure, and our talent. We want to be wise about that. And this is something that Jesus talks much of. In Matthew 5 to 7, chapters 5 and 7, we, we find what we call the Sermon on the Mount. It's where Jesus takes time to describe the realities of his kingdom. Sometimes God's kingdom is called the upside-down kingdom because it is diametrically opposed. It is 180 degree different than what our kingdom looks like. And when we are hearing Jesus describe his kingdom to us, what we want to do is we want to dig in. We talked about this last week. We want to dig in. We want to interact with, we want to engage with the text. And then when we hear what Jesus is saying, we want to give it authority over us. And then we want to be transformed by it. And here's the thing when Jesus is describing his upside-down kingdom in the Sermon on the Mount. It's It's not just a future reality. Jesus is not just telling us what it's going to be like. What Jesus is describing for us is the way that we ought to live our lives now. And we're broken people, we're fallen people, we're sinful people. So we are not going to successfully, 100%, live out God's kingdom. But that doesn't mean that that's not what he is calling us to. And Jesus is not just a wise person. He's not just a moral teacher. He is God's son. He is the Messiah. And they are meant to be listened to, and they are meant to be lived out. And in Matthew chapter 6, we find Jesus talking with all sorts of people about a couple different things. He's talking to them about giving. He's talking to them about praying. He's talking to them about fasting. And interestingly, in each one of those cases, Jesus says that there is a way to pray 
There is a way to give. There is a way to fast that doesn't honor God. I want you to hear that. There is a way to pray that doesn't honor God. There's a way to fast that doesn't honor God. There's a way to give that doesn't honor God. You can follow the the structure of those things. And what Jesus is talking about is Jesus is talking about the hearts of the faster, the heart of the prayer, the heart of the giver. And if your heart, if my heart is not correct in fasting or praying or giving, then then we're doing it wrong. We're missing, we're missing the point. And Jesus has a word for those people in the text. Jesus has a word for us when we don't pray fast and give appropriately. And that word is hypocrite. See, Jesus is not just interested that we give. Jesus is just not interested in that we pray. Jesus is not only interested in that we fast. He's interested in how we give, how we pray, how we fast. And I don't mean quantities. I, I don't mean any of that. But what's, the, what's our heart? What's the orientation of our hearts? And I love, you can, you can read through all of chapter 6. I love it. If you do all the right things so that people will notice, I love the way Jesus says this. If you pray so, uh, so you'll be noticed by other people, he says, that's the only applause you're going to get. If you give to be seen by men, that's the only reward you will get. If you fast only to be seen by men, that is the only reward you will get. Their applause, their pat on the back to you, that's all you're going to get if you are doing things out of the wrong orientation. And all of this is the context for what Jesus says next. Let's talk about Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21. Don't store up treasures here on earth, where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your heart is, there, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. What are you investing in? What are you investing in? Where are you storing up your treasures? I don't have 15 sentences to add to what Jesus is saying. Where are your treasures stored? Verses 22 and 23. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. How healthy are your eyes? 
He's not talking about your physical eyes. He's talking about your spiritual eyes. He's telling us that what we see spiritually matters. And this last little thing that Jesus said here, our ability to deceive ourselves is unparalleled. Our ability to deceive ourselves is unparalleled. If you think you're looking at light, or if you think you're looking with light, and it's really dark, we're in trouble, aren't we? Like, if we think we're following after the truth, and we're not following after the truth, we have a little bit of a problem on our hands, and that's what Jesus is talking about. He's asking us to see what's going on. Verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate the one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. I know that we all think we can. I know that we all think that we have it all under control. I know we think that we have our finances set and we invest it and we invest it and we invest it. But what Jesus is telling us here is we can't have two masters. You can't love both God and money. You can't. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't love God and money. That's what he says. And as I'm reading this and That's what the whole issue of authority is about, isn't it? When we think of Jesus as God's son, when we think about Jesus as the Messiah, if he is those things and he tells us something, like don't we have to listen to him? Our authority, we've talked about this so many times, the being who created everything, Everything, who knows everything about us. Everything. He's telling us that we can't serve God in money. So, is Jesus wrong? Here's the blunt question. Here's the blunt version of that. Is Jesus lying to us? Do we think he's lying? Jesus had his authority questioned all the time. So if we're in that space and we're, and we're wrestling with this concept of giving him authority in our lives, Jesus wrestled with authority all the time, with people questioning his authority. Let's flip over to Matthew 16 for one of those instances. So this is Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1. One day, the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to test Jesus, demanding that he show them a miraculous sign from heaven to prove his authority. He replied, You know the saying, Red sky at night means fair weather tomorrow. Red sky in the morning means foul weather all day. You know how to interpret the weather signs in the sky, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. 
Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. But the only sign I will give them is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Then Jesus left them and went away. What I find so interesting about the way Jesus responds to their demand, because that's what it is. They're demanding of Jesus something. Show us your authority. I find it so fascinating that Jesus talks about their ability to see the color of the sky. Isn't that what we just talked about in Matthew 6? The light, the eye is the light of the body. When your eyes are healthy, you can discern truth. But when your eyes are not healthy, you're not seeing what you think you see. What you think you see is wrong. And Jesus next, as we were to go, if we were to read this whole text, Jesus next warns his disciples about the deceptive teachings of the Pharisees, telling them to beware the yeast of the Pharisees. And then he asks his disciples, he says, who do the people say that I am? This too is about authority, isn't it? Peter, James, John, Bartholomew. What's the, what's the word on the street about me? What do people have to say about me? Who do the people say that I am? And the disciples reply. The people basically think that Jesus is, is one of the many teachers or prophets. He has, and like those teachers or prophets, he has some authority, but he doesn't have an ultimate authority over them. And it's really no surprise then if Jesus only has some authority. It's no surprise that the people of Jesus' day treat him that way, is it? It's no surprise that people who only give Jesus limited authority treat him as though he is a limited authority. Sometimes Jesus says things that we really like. And we, and we like that, and we go with that, and we respond to that. And we say, yes, Jesus is our authority in this time. Other times, Jesus says things that we don't really like. And in those moments, don't we question his authority? Don't we ask what gives him the right to tell me that I can't love God and money? What gives him the right to speak truth into my own life? This is about authority. How many masters are we serving? How are we loving our neighbors? Do we... Again, do we think that Jesus was joking when, when he's talking, when he's telling us what God's heart looks like? Do we maybe think like in 2019 and, and we think about who Jesus was living 2,000 years ago and we think, well, well, Jesus doesn't understand like all of the intricacies of immigration laws in the United States. So when Jesus tells me that I'm supposed to love my neighbor, like he, that's not what he meant. He didn't mean that I'm supposed to love people who are coming across the border. He meant I'm supposed to love the person that lives next to me. Like, do we think that just Jesus didn't know what's going on? Or is Jesus an authority over us? 
And we too ought to beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Because it's really simple for us to become a Pharisee, isn't it? For us to keep the laws, for us to insist that everyone keep the law. And then Jesus, after he hears what everyone else thinks about him, he turns to his disciples and he asks them an important question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say that I am? And this too is a question of authority. And how they and how we answer that question will reveal everything about the authority that Jesus has in our lives. How we answer that question, who do we say Jesus is, reveals everything about the level of authority Jesus has over us. And this is Peter's answer. This is how he answered. This is one of the reasons we ask this question when when someone's baptized at Westway Christian Church. We have them repeat back to us, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what Peter is saying here. Let's read verse 21, beginning at 21 in Matthew 16. So they just have this interaction, right? Who do the people say I am? They think you're a great teacher. Great. Who do you think I am? We say you are the Messiah. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hand of the elders, the leading priests, the teachers of the law. He would be killed, but on the third day he would be raised from the dead. But Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid you, Lord, this will never happen to you. This is the same Peter that just told Jesus that he was the Messiah. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view and not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my follower, I can just imagine he said this in a sarcastic way. If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? As I was thinking about this interaction that Jesus has with, with his disciples and with Peter in particular, it's easy to just say things without considering the implications of our words, isn't it? Have you ever done that? Just Someone asks you a question and you start talking without actually considering what it is that you're saying. And I think that's something that happened to Peter here. He gave the right answer, but he didn't understand the implications of Jesus being 
the Son of the living God. So when Jesus began to explain it to him, Peter was confused, and he pulls him aside to reprimand him, to tell him there's no way anyone is taking you. It's not enough for us as Christians, as believers. It's not enough for us to just give to the needy. It's not enough just for us to pray. It is not enough for us to fast. We must do these things correctly. We must do these things properly. Isaiah says this, And so the Lord says, These people say they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. It's condemning, isn't it? That's truth. Peter, Jesus is asking Peter about his vision. He's asking him about his vision. He's asking him what does he see and how is he living out his life and how is his life impacted by what he sees. Peter, whose authority are you seeing? Are you seeing man's authority? Are you seeing God's authority? And ultimately, this is about investment. This is all about investment. And what Jesus says at the end of Matthew 16 is that investment in God's kingdom is going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's literally going to cost you everything. It's not just going to cost you like the low-hanging fruit of your money. It's going to cost you, it's going to cost me. Investing in God's kingdom is going to cost us everything that we have. You can give your money and not give your heart. You can give your money and not give your heart. But you can't give your heart and not give your money. You can't give your heart and withhold your time or your talent. You can't. This is what it means for us to gain the whole world and lose our soul. To follow the the man-made rules learned by rote. To do all of the things that we're supposed to do because we're supposed to do them and our heart's not in it. This is what it looks like for us to honor God with our lips or even to honor God with our wallets or our pocketbooks or your purses or whatever. You can honor God with those things but have a heart that's far from him and God doesn't buy it. He doesn't accept it. He doesn't receive it. Is anything worth more than your soul? Jesus, the author of God's kingdom, the creator of everything that we see, says no. No. There's nothing worth more than your soul. But some of us, some of us struggle with this. We don't, we don't see it in the way, and there's that word again. We don't see God's kingdom. We don't see God's authority in the way that his authority and kingdom is meant to be seen. Talked a little bit about this last week. 
Some of us are very content to give Jesus a, a spot of positional authority over our lives. We place God in a role of positional authority. Here's what that might look like. I was pondering this. Some of us get really, really, really offended when people use God's name in vain. And then strangely, when we go to the grocery store or Target or Walmart in December and someone doesn't say his name to us, we get offended by that too. See, this is what it looks like to put God or Jesus as a positional authority over us, but not allow him to influence us. We love the idea of Jesus as an authority, and we shake our fists at a world who doesn't accept him, but we are unwilling to look inside of ourselves. We don't use this word like a mirror. We talked about that in the book of James. We don't use Scripture as a mirror that is reflecting back on us the truth about God and the truth about ourselves. We are unwilling. We're unwilling to look inward and be reflective. We'll pray, but only when someone is watching. Or we give only because we are supposed to. He has positional authority, but he doesn't have influence over our lives. We listen to Jesus' words about how we're supposed to treat people, how we're supposed to treat one another, but we don't change what we post on Facebook. We don't change how we post on social media. And I think what happens is, like so many people in Jesus' day, we limit him to a good man. We limit Jesus. We neuter him to a great moral teacher and a prophet because we're actually not going to be transformed by him. We just want to be around him. And to be transformed by him is to interact and engage with him. To give him authority by doing what he says. And then living transformed lives. This is what it means for us to be followers of Jesus. Is to study this. To be in relationship with people who are coaching us and teaching us and training us. And holding us accountable on his word so that we can be transformed by it, so we can see that what he's saying is not just meant for 2,000 years ago, but it's meant for us today. We are supposed to do something with this. This is supposed to impact us. That's what it means to allow God to have influence. Well, some of you are probably wondering when we're going to talk about money. When I'm going to make the big plea, when we're going to pass the offering plates, right? We're going to do it over and over and over until the, until the dollars match what we want to have. Maybe you thought today that we were going to talk about what the Bible says or doesn't say about tithing. As I said, when I sat down to write this message, this was not it. 
This is not what I thought God had for me. It's not what I thought God had for us as a body. Maybe you thought we were going to talk about life hacks, like six ways you can save more money in 2019. I know I've said some pretty bizarre things from the front over my two years here at Westway Christian Church. And what I'm about to say is probably the craziest thing you'll ever hear me say. If your heart is not in it, if you're not giving out of the joy and peace that God gives you, we don't want your money. If your heart is not in it, we don't want your time, we don't want your talent. Jesus is after so much more than those things. Jesus was once asked, what is the most important commandment? And this was his response. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And you know what? If Jesus is satisfied with all of you, if Jesus is satisfied with your entire heart and your entire mind and your entire soul, then I think at Westway Christian Church, we can be satisfied with that too. If you want to be his follower, it's going to cost you everything. Not just your money. You know that God doesn't need your money. He made everything. He doesn't need your money. You can't serve two masters. No matter hard you, how hard you work at that, you'll love God and hate money, or you'll hate God and love money. And here's what I want you to wrestle with today. Who's your master? What is your master? And practically speaking, every single one of us needs to evaluate why we give or why we don't give. We need to evaluate how much or how little we give. Some of us in this room probably need to not give because your heart is not right. And you might be giving out of some notion that if you can just give to God, there's like this giant set of scales in heaven. And if you, like if you just keep giving, eventually what's going to happen is your giving is going to outweigh your sins. It's not the way it works. If that's how you are operating your giving, I love you. Keep your money. It's not going to work. If that's you, your heart isn't right, and your next step is to get right with God by repenting of that sin. Some of us need to start giving, and that too begins with repentance and action. And some of us need to give more. God has richly blessed us, and I'm not talking about finances. He has given us life so that we can have it to the fullest. And our generous giving is a reflection of the generous gift that God gave to us through his son, Jesus. And the question that we have to ask is, are, if we've received that gift, are we being generous? Are we being generous? Is it a reflection of what Jesus has done? Jesus doesn't only want your cash. He wants all of you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for the way you 
take us out of control of what we think are our own lives. Thank you for all of the ways that you reveal that you are the authority in our life. And I, I ask, God, that, that our lives would reflect your authority. That our answer to the question, who do we say you are, would reveal that you are our authority. For those of us who have not given over ourselves to you, God, please continue to be merciful and gracious and kind and call us to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.